welcome to Resurrection City Church, uh, especially if you're new or visiting with us this morning. It's really fun to have you guys here this morning. Um, I feel like I should also give a special welcome to the people who might be listening online this week because we've got a lot of people up north at the cabin uh, or at the cottage if you're from Wisconsin like I am. We call it a cottage, not a cabin, uh, for Fourth of July weekend. So thanks for being here. We are excited to be able to get together and to worship uh, this morning. So we are in a sermon series. We just started last week going through the book of Ruth. Uh, and as I said last week, I'm still really excited about this because I love story, and we kind of left with a little bit of a cliffhanger last week as to what's going to happen to the characters in our story. So I'm excited to keep moving through it and to get to see what God's going to do and how that his word and his story is going to speak to us this morning. So before we jump right into chapter 2, um, I think give a little bit of a recap. If you remember, last week we left Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law, and they have been in Moab, another country, uh, because of a famine. So they've basically been refugees in this other country. Uh, And while they're there, Naomi's sons get married, which is how she gets her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And then, unfortunately, uh, her husband and her sons all die while they're there. So they've faced a huge tragedy while they've been there, and now they're kind of trying to figure out what is next? What are we going to do? And what is God going to do? Because so far in the story, uh, it seems to the characters and maybe to us as the readers as if God hasn't really been doing anything. And so as we leave them, we are kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And they decide to go back to Bethlehem, which is Naomi's home country, And Ruth decides to go with her, even though she will be a foreigner there, she'll be a widow, a barren uh, widow who is honestly going to be treated pretty poorly going into Bethlehem. But she decides to make that sacrifice because she wants to follow God and wants to care for Naomi in that. So we left off with them getting back to Bethlehem, not knowing what quite is going to happen. So let's get started and see what's coming next. Oh, no, that's the wrong direction. Uh, Okay, so Ruth 2. The very first sentence is kind of a strange uh, interjection from the narrator. He says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So in a way, the narrator's kind of reminding us of what the conflict was. Last week we talked about how the conflict for the characters was that They didn't have any sons. They didn't have any male relatives to take care of them, to provide for them, and to keep their family line going. Uh, And we talked a little bit about how that feels weird to us now in our culture, but how at at that point in time, that's how the world worked. And so they kind of had to operate within that uh, society. So we get this interjection from the narrator that kind of gives us a little bit of hope, right? A male relative. That's good news. Uh, we don't really know, did Naomi forget that she had this relative or like what happened that all of a sudden the narrator is going to tell us about this. Um, and it doesn't seem like the characters remember this yet. So it's a strange way to start it, but I think it's helping set the stage and give a little bit of hope to both the, the readers and the characters. So continuing on, it says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So something to note right away in verse 2 is that the narrator makes a point to call Ruth the Moabite, 
which, if we've been reading this, is kind of strange, right? We just spent all of chapter one with these characters. We know who they are. We know that Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, but I think the author is trying to remind us and point out that now that they are in Bethlehem, Ruth's status as a Moabite is really going to stand out. She is going to be felt as a foreigner right away. People are just going to look at her and they're going to know that she is not one of them. She does not fit in in this place. And so the narrator kind of gives us that cue to remind us of that. And because she's also a widow, uh, as we talked about, Ruth and Naomi are basically going to have to go on what would have been their welfare system. They don't have any way to make money for themselves or to provide for themselves. And so right away, Ruth says, I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to go pick up grain from people left behind. Uh, And to understand this, it sounds like a strange thing to us, again, because we're not really familiar with the farming practices and how that all worked. Uh, But to understand it, you have to look back at some of the Israelite laws in everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. So this is how we're going to start our Sunday morning. We're going to go back to Leviticus. Um, I kind of joke because if you haven't read Leviticus before, it can be kind of a confusing book. There's a lot of laws that maybe might not make sense in our modern-day context. You kind of have to look back at the context that uh, it was written in. But we're going to look at one that's pretty straightforward uh, in Leviticus 19. So Leviticus 19.9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. So that's kind of what's left over on the ground. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So there was this practice that the Israelites were supposed to follow where they were supposed to leave kind of some of their harvest left in the land so that those who needed it could come by and pick it up. It was a way to prevent against greed, and it was also a way to help care for anybody who is in need. And if you read on a little bit in Leviticus 19, it gives kind of the reason or the heart behind the law. So verse 33, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So it's kind of a reminder for the people of God that they are no better off than anybody else. Their history is that they were foreigners and slaves and mistreated when they were in Egypt. And God came in, and out of his great love and his great mercy, he rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt, and he gave them a home. And so he says, don't forget where you came from. Use this family history of of your people to remember what it was like to be a foreigner. And instead of using that to have advantage over the people in your land, use it for the advantage and the benefit of others. And unfortunately, it's fairly well documented that this law was not followed very often. Uh, And if you think back, last week we talked about the setting of the Book of Ruth and how it was set in the time of the judges. And we talked a little bit about how in the time of the judges, the phrase that they kept saying was, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And if you think about that, doing what's right in your own eyes is probably not thinking about the benefit of other people. And then if you also add in the fact that we're coming out, this, the people in this town are coming out of a famine. So they're coming out of a time where they are short on food, short on money, short on ways to provide themselves. So to think, 
hmm, I should leave some of this for other people, might have been really hard for them because they're thinking, hey, I need to store up here. We've gone through a lot of hard times. I need to take care of myself and my family first. So you can imagine that this is a law that would have been difficult for people to follow and may not always have been followed correctly. And as you think about gleaning, trying to explain it in like modern day terms or thinking of a modern day example, uh, it would have been closest to like collecting aluminum cans and cashing them in. It was slow, it was hard work, like labor intensive, and honestly, it didn't amount to much. So Ruth saying, hey, I'm gonna go glean, right away says, hey, I know that this is gonna be hard for us and I'm gonna take initiative right now and I'm gonna get out there and start doing it, even though I know it's gonna be hard even though I know some people might not even let me do it. And the, as we go on in the story, Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter. So you get kind of this idea that Naomi's a little bit resigned from everything. In the last chapter, we saw how she was feeling pretty bitter and upset about how things were going. And so she says, go ahead. And so Ruth went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. Okay, so here comes this Boaz character that the narrator kind of teased out to us already. And the author says, as it turned out, or that's how we get it translated, um, and that's not quite the same translation that we would have gotten if we were reading the original text. The original text says something like, um, she chanced to chance. So it sounds kind of silly, right? But the author's trying to really make the point of like, this is crazy. She just happens to be in the field of Boaz. And as we think about it now, we're like, yeah, coincidence, that happens. Um, But the people in the time of Ruth, when they were writing it, they didn't really believe in coincidence quite as much as we did. They looked at everything and really saw the hand of God working in all of the small little details of their life. So if they heard the author say something like this, they would have been like, oh, I know what this is. This is God at work. Even though it doesn't, they don't straight out tell us that, they would have thought, hmm, I think this might be something that God is doing. So they wouldn't necessarily look at it the way we would and be like, oh, wow, she's really lucky. Or like, wow, she made a really good decision. That was like, good job on her part. They would have attributed it more to God. So as we look at this, we're going to see a lot of kind of Uh, things that the narrator might say that really kind of hints to us that God is showing up in this story. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit more about this Boaz character that comes in. In the past, I have heard people talk about Boaz as if he's just this handsome, young, rich, eligible bachelor uh, just waiting around for a woman to show up, and then Ruth suddenly appears. Uh, But that's really not a very true version of what this would have been. So I'm sorry if you're a big fan of The Bachelor or of rom-coms, but it's not how this story is necessarily going to go. When the narrator introduced him in verse 1, back in verse 1, he says that Boaz was a man of standing, which basically meant that he was probably wealthy and probably really well-liked in the town, well-respected, people knew who he was. um, And he was a landowner, so we know that he had a lot of money there, and he probably had a lot of influence over people in the town. But he was also probably older. He was probably closer to Naomi's age than he was to Ruth's age. 
and he was also probably widowed or something like that because if a man had well, like, good standing in the town, uh, he would have probably had to have had sons because, as we talked about last week, having sons and having the, your line be carried on was a huge thing for this culture. So for us to not really get any mention of it doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't have previous marriages and sons along with that. So while Boaz is a pretty good guy, as we're going to see, he is not necessarily the handsome young bachelor that we might want him to be or maybe have heard him painted as before. So let's go on and see what he does. He says, The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So we see right away that Boaz clearly knows his employees and knows the people in his fields, and he notices that there's someone new there, someone who is a foreigner, who stands out, and who is different. And so, again, we see them emphasize the fact that Ruth is a Moabite from Moab. Uh, And then the rest of what this overseer kind of summarizes and says here is very confusing to understand in the original language. So we're going to kind of look at some of the possibilities of what he could be saying. So we'll start with the summary of what he says Ruth is asking. He says, some people seem to think that Ruth has asked for, oh, sorry, some people seem to think that he has asked for, Ruth is asking for permission to do more than what the original law says. Um, And so the NIV says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And it sounds like just like what the law said, right? It sounds very similar to us, but some of the language is a little bit different. And the way that gleaning would have worked is that the men would go through and they would cut the grain and then like carry it with them until they had too much and they couldn't carry it anymore. And then they would put it down in piles. And then the next group of people would be the women who would come through who worked for Boaz. And they would tie those piles into, I don't know, they'd, I don't know what they used to tie it. I don't know if they had string or ribbon or whatever it was. But they would tie these, these grain bundles into piles and then I think they'd kind of set them up like that. So you'd have all of these different steps through the gleaning process. And the gleaners who are kind of coming through, who are collecting the last of it, were supposed to just come through and pick up anything that was left on the floor or anything that they could kind of get. But again, these workers were careful. This was their job. And this was a harvest season right after the famine. So there probably wasn't a whole lot that was getting left. These people were doing their job well uh, and making sure they carefully bundle all of these. But Ruth seems to be asking to be right in the middle of it all. Instead of coming behind everybody, she asks to uh, gather among the sheaves, which is a little bit different than what gleaners would have, specific, would have done in that time period. And so if that's possible, if that's really what she asked for, it's likely that she did it because she knew that in order to provide for both herself and for Naomi, she would need extra Right? As I said before, this was hard work, and a lot of times you didn't get a whole lot to take home. And so if she's gleaning for two people, she knew, hey, I'm going to have to take a lot more home with me than I might normally get. And she takes this bold step to ask and say, hey, is there any way that I could be more in the middle of this than right at the end? 
And then the next part of the overseer's description is also a little bit confusing. Uh, he says, she has remained here from morning until now. And in the original language, it's a little unclear if he means, like, here, like, next to him. Like, she's just been hanging out, waiting to get an answer from her request. Or if she was out in the fields gleaning, and that's where she was this whole time. So it's, it's entirely possible that she had this big, bold request, and the overseer, the manager, was like, uh... I don't know. I don't know if I should tell her that she can do that or if I should say, no, you need to go home. Or maybe he said, no, you need to go home. And she was like, okay, I'm just going to stand here and wait. Kind of like when people are like, hey, can I talk to the owner? Uh, And then you're like, okay, if you're the manager and you're standing there, you kind of have to awkwardly wait with them until the owner comes. Uh, But it's not like Boaz was just hanging out in the back. We don't know where he was. He was somewhere else. So again, it just happened to be that he came back right at the time that Ruth is standing here and waiting. So either way, we know that Ruth has taken a big risk coming out to glean for herself and for Naomi. And that as the lowest on the social totem pole, she's really putting herself out there to care for her. Uh, And so we're going to see how Boaz responds when he does finally show up. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Notice there, he calls her my daughter, which is actually the same thing that Naomi says to her. So it kind of shows his age again. He's probably significantly older than Ruth is. He says, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Okay, so not only does Boaz agree to Ruth's pretty bold, potentially crazy ask, he goes beyond what she even asks for. And if you've read this story before, you might be tempted to skip over this, But this is crazy. Boaz has never met Ruth. She's an undocumented, widowed, barren, poor woman who has absolutely nothing going for her according to society. She's literally the lowest of the low. And she just shows up out of nowhere and asks for something that seems like a really big ask. Boaz Boaz could have and probably should have laughed and like thrown her off his property. Uh, according to cultural standards, that would have been really normal. He has no logical reason to respond the way that he does. Even the letter of the law didn't require him to do what he does. And I can only imagine that the manager, who's still probably just like hanging out here, is like, what? Maybe thinking like, I need to look for another job. This guy is crazy. You know, it's it's kind of those funny things that you wonder, like what else were the other characters in this story doing when, when this happens? So Boaz treats someone who has no value in the culture as if she is worth as much as anybody else working in his field. Ruth asks to be more than a gleaner, and Boaz responds by giving her even more than she asks. You can see that he almost even treats her a little bit like an employee, even though she's a foreigner. He says, stay with the women who work for me and follow along after them. And then he adds a layer of protection. As I talked about before, gleaning was dangerous business, uh, especially as a widowed, barren woman. She would have been like a, a big target for abuse and exploitation. And in Ruth, or Boaz says, I've told all of the men not to touch you. He kind of puts like the world's first sexual harassment policy in place in his work. Uh, it seems kind of normal to us that that would be uh, like a no-brainer, but in their culture, 
it's actually pretty radical that he would say, I'm going to add this layer of protection for you, someone who, according to society, doesn't have a lot of worth. And then lastly, he says that she can drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And this would have saved her a lot of time in the fields because she would have had to be working for a while, and then because it's hot and you're outside and you're doing manual labor, needed to go get water, but she would have had to go to the well, draw her own water, which would have taken time, taken energy. Uh, but instead, he says, no, you can just drink, it's like, you can drink from the water cooler that everybody else drinks at at work. Uh, and that's especially crazy because typically women were the ones who drew water for men, and especially it would have been foreigners drawing water for native people. So the fact that he says, you can just have the water that the men drew, puts a lot of worth and value on Ruth uh, that everybody else would not have had. So Boaz not only grants her request, but he goes above and beyond. He shows her true hesed, which we talked about last week. It's that word for kindness that really means like faithfulness, loyal, love, all of the qualities of God's love kind of imaged in other people. So he shows that to her. And all of this is not lost on Ruth. She responds in verse 10 by saying, or she bows down with her face to the ground, and she asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? So she literally falls on the ground. She's so astonished and thankful. And she expresses, expresses such astonishment that she would, he would notice her, a foreigner. In some ways, she's saying, you've noticed the unnoticeable. You've recognized the unrecognized. And I'm sure in one way or another, we can kind of relate to that feeling. You've probably had some point in your life uh, where you maybe felt like you didn't quite measure up to everyone else around you, that you were going unnoticed, um, that you weren't maybe being valued for who you were, whether that was maybe like in high school, right, with the drama and the lunch tables, where can you sit, that kind of stuff, or maybe it was in your family, or maybe it's at work. Um, But I'm sure you can all remember that feeling of what it feels like to just feel like you don't have any value. And now imagine that times 10, or maybe even more than that, uh, because this is how Ruth would have felt. She was at the very bottom of the bottom. And this guy, who is a wealthy man of good standing, comes and says, I see you. And not only do I see you, but I care about you. And I want you to be valued in my workplace. So she asks him, why? Why me? Why, Why are you treating me the way that you are? And he replies by saying, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here he gives his reasoning, and notice it's not because she's young and pretty and he's falling in love with her in the way that some people might tell the story, right, with Boaz being the young bachelor. But it's because he's seen the love, the loyal Hesed love that, Na- or that Ruth has showed Naomi, and he's been inspired by it. It's touched him in some way, and he's recognized that she gave up all of her old life, right, her mother, her father, her homeland, to follow God, and to show love to Naomi. And here's this interesting thing about this type of hesed love, this loyal, faithful love that goes above and beyond all requirements. It's contagious, right? Ruth shows it to Naomi, and Boaz hears about it, and now he's showing it to her. 
Uh, I used to work at a coffee shop. I've worked at a lot of different ones over the years. Uh, and most recently, the one I worked at had a very busy drive through And one of the things that always encouraged me, if I'm being really honest, surprised me about what would happen is that every once in a while, someone would come through and say, hey, give me an extra five or whatever, and say, hey, pay for the, the guy's drink behind me. And then the crazy thing that would happen is that then the next person would come through, they would be so surprised and excited that someone was paying for their drink that then they would offer to pay for the person behind them. And I was like, wow, this really does happen, right? You hear stories about this, but it's like, I actually got to see this firsthand. And sometimes it would go on for like 10 or 20 cars. It was crazy. But I think there's something about when someone shows you this great kindness, and buying a cup of coffee is a small, small example of this, right? But when someone shows you that kind of kindness, it inspires you to want to go and, and pay it forward, right? It's kind of cliche, but there's some truth to it. There's this idea that when we experience it, we want to be able to, to experience it for other people and to pass it on to them. Now, like I said, buying a cup of coffee is a very small, small example of what Boaz is doing for Ruth, which was a huge, huge deal. Uh, but it's a similar type of thing. He shows his love for God not only by obeying the letter of the law, but by going above and beyond that and caring for Ruth in a way that he didn't have to. He shows love to Ruth by caring for her and not only allowing her to glean, as she asked, but also giving her extra protection as she does it. And Boaz notes that Ruth's contagious love, her inspiration for loving Naomi and following her, counts from taking refuge under God's wing is the way he phrases it. Basically, he's saying, you followed God, you sought out God and said, I want to follow him. And that kind of led to all this contagious love. And Daniel Black, one of the commentators that I read on this, he, talks it, he says it this way. He says, although Boaz is probably thinking primarily of the day when Ruth transferred her allegiance from the God of the Moabites to the God of Israel, so kind of her conversion, if you will, uh, as taking refuge under God's wing. Um, he, her actions this morning represent a specific application of her general looking to God for protection. And as much as she has come to Boaz and he offered her his protection, he was personally functioning as the wings of God. So not only has Ruth taken refuge under God's wing by choosing to follow him, she chooses to believe that God is at work wherever she goes. And even though she and Naomi has faced nothing but hardship so far in the story, she believes that God will protect her, and she acts boldly in that belief. And he does, through Boaz. I love the, the phrase that Black uses when he says that Boaz personally functions as the wings of God. Because God works through the most ordinary circumstances and the most ordinary of people. All right, let's finish up the story here. Ruth responds by saying, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Ruth thanks him and uh, uh, really kind of points out the fact, she remembers like, yeah, I don't even have the standing of one of your servants, and yet you're treating me so well. Okay, so I'm going to move kind of shift to a time of application Uh, And I want us to put ourselves in Ruth's shoes again. Because here's the thing. As crazy as it was for Boaz to do what he did and to treat Ruth the way that he did, his actions are only a fraction of the crazy love that God shows us. His actions, God's actions, all the way back in the Old Testament, 
were foreshadowing what God would do for anyone who believed in him in the future. And even though all of us, all of humankind, have fallen short of God's standards, none of us, not even the best, most humanitarian, kindest people, measure up to being worthy of God's love and affection. And yet he found a way to bring us near to him. He sacrificed his only son, Jesus, so that we could be found worthy in him. Through that believing in Christ uh, and that he is the only one who is worthy, we can be made new in him. We just finished studying Ephesians, and this verse just kept coming back to my mind. Ephesians 2, 12-13 says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we can't forget that without God, we are foreigners. We were without hope and without God in the world. The lowest of the lows, just like Ruth. We had no value or worth or standing of our own. And yet because God loved us so much, he makes a big sacrifice for our sake. Even bigger than Boaz, he takes a step off of his throne to come down to us, even though we aren't worthy of it. And this should make us fall on our faces in astonishment the way that Ruth does. It should make us praise God and be excited to show the same kind of love that he has shown us to other people. God recognized us when we were unrecognized, and he noticed us when we were unnoticeable. Which is why our first application point for today is just to remember that you were a foreigner, that we all are without Christ. To acknowledge that we need God, to be humbled by the fact that without him, we are nothing. And, acknowledge, and acknowledging that shouldn't lead to us feeling bad about ourselves or really feeling like, wow, I'm really nothing and I'm horrible and I, I hate myself. But it should actually lead to praise and acknowledgement of God being so great, right? Don't focus on the, the worthlessness that we had, but focus on the worth that Christ has given us, even when we didn't deserve it. And God doesn't just make a way for us to like sort of be his employee the way that Boaz does for Ruth, even though that's still truly incredible and honorable for him to do. But God goes above and beyond again. He puts us on his team. He makes us a part of his family. He says, yeah, you were worthless without this, but I'm going to bring you so close to me that you're my sons and my daughters. He adopts us into his family, and he makes us a part of the work that he is doing in the world. We get to join in in the crazy mission of God of showing that type of love to other people. Which is why our second application point for today is to notice the unnoticed. In the same way that God showed us love, even though we were foreigners and outcasts to him, we now get a chance to share that love with others. To pay it forward in a sense, right? To buy that cup of coffee for the next person. But I mean that in a bigger way, right? I mean to actually think about Who are the people that we can, in the same way that Boaz did, personally function as the wings of God for other people who might need it? So individually this week, I want us to consider, who can we notice who goes unnoticed? Who can we give dignity and worth to who may not have it? There are probably a lot of small examples in your daily life that you can think of. You know, maybe it's people in your neighborhood who just, you know, they're they're newer or they don't look or talk or act like the other people in the neighborhood. Maybe they feel like they're outcasts. Or maybe it's someone on your team at work who just doesn't quite fit in or is new and doesn't really know what they're doing and might feel like they're not worth the value of the rest of the team. Maybe it's the 
you know, the people in the stores that you go to or the baristas at the coffee shop that you go to. How can you show dignity and worth to people who may not feel like they have it? And then I also, we wanted to create an opportunity for us to do this corporately as a church. And so that's why we've decided uh, through the month of July to partner with an organization called Bridging. So Bridging is an organization with the mission to improve lives by providing quality furniture and household goods to those transitioning out of homelessness and poverty. So as an organization, they collect new and used household items, and then they store them in their warehouses. And one of their warehouses actually just up the street from us in Roseville. And then they work with different agencies to get connected to people who are transitioning uh, out of homelessness or out of poverty into maybe their first home. And so they'll have people come through their warehouse and they can pick out you know, household essentials that they might need, a pillow, kitchen essentials, uh, all those different types of things. And Bridging serves more than 4,500 households per year. And more, of half of the, more than half of the individuals that they serve are children under 17 years of age. 87% of clients have a household annual income of less than 20000 per year. So these are people who, maybe like Ruth, are looking for that extra protection. They're looking for ways to help transition into a life where they have a stable place and they can feel like they have worth and they have dignity. And being able to provide them with simple household items is one of those ways that we can help out with that. So as I talked to the people at Bridging, uh, they said that in Roseville right now, their biggest need is, kind of ironically for summer, blankets. Uh, and so they give out over 13,000 blankets a year, and that is a lot of blankets if you think about it. Uh, and so we decided that for the month of July, we are going to hold a blanket drive. So you guys can bring in blankets throughout July, uh, and we will donate them all to Bridging. You can bring in new or gently used blankets. They say just for the used ones, they ask for no stains, tears, or pet hair. So those are kind of the, uh, the requirements. But uh, they can be any size or any color. Uh, and I think they said their biggest need right now is for queen-sized blankets. So this is just one way that we want to say, as a church, we want to come together and be able to show dignity and worth to other people in our community. And so this is something that I hope that you guys will be able to participate in, whether it's looking at your house and seeing if you have any blankets that you could donate, um, or maybe together as a community group, you're all going to pool together to be able to buy a blanket, or uh, you could even make some of those like fleece tie blankets if that's something that you'd be interested in doing. Because I think this could really help show people in our community that, uh, that we care and that we want to show that same kind of love that has been shown to us by God to other people. All right. And then lastly, uh, I know for myself, I have not been able to read this passage and think about these application points without thinking about the migrant kids at the border. And if you follow the news at all, you've probably seen the stories that have come out recently about these kids and how they're separated from their parents and are held in what are increasingly being reported as unsafe and unsanitary conditions. And I'll be, on, I'll be honest with you guys, I've really struggled to write this part of my sermon. Uh, it's at the end, not because I don't think it has value, but because I struggled to be able to put words to uh, what's been weighing so heavily on my mind and on my heart as I've thought about it this week. And I know that I'm not going to have the right words to say about this and that my words won't change the horrible facts of what's happening right now. 
But every time I think about these kids, I can't help but think about my own nieces, who I love so much, or the kids here at Red City who have grown to love so much. And I don't think that it can go without being said when we talk about this passage and we think about the words that Scripture is saying. And I know that you all may have differing political opinions on this issue, and that's okay. I'm not here to tell you how to vote or what kind of political actions you should take, uh, But the one thing I am here to tell you and to talk about is that as I've spent time in the book of Ruth, uh, is that as Christians, this is not an issue we can pass on. We don't get the luxury of saying, not my problem. It's too complex. I can't make a difference. I I just won't get involved. I won't stay informed. It's too hard to, to look at. Because verses that we've seen, like in Leviticus 19, make it very clear that God cares about this issue and about these people. He says clearly that we are not to mistreat those who are foreigners in our country because we ourselves were foreigners. God cares deeply about the foreigners, and he calls us to care deeply about them as well. No matter what your politics are, this is uh, happening at the border, the thing that are happening there with the kids being separated from their families and being kept in unsafe and unsanitary conditions is wrong. Plain and simple, the trauma that's being inflicted on these kids is something that Christ and God are not okay with, something that the Bible speaks against, and I think we need to acknowledge that. And now I know that the situation is complex and that currently there's not a whole lot that individuals can do in terms of offering supplies or help um, just because of different rules that they have there. But as Christians, there is one thing that each one of us can do, and that is pray, which is why the last application point I have is just that we would pray about this issue. We have a God who knows and loves each and every one of those children and families We have an all-powerful God who we have access to through prayer. The same God that came down to us, we can talk to him through prayer. We can ask that things would be different and that things would change. We know that he listens and he hears the cries of his people. So I really want to ask that all of us would be praying about this. That we would pray that God would protect these children from further harm. That he would prevent any further trauma from happening to them that he would rescue them both spiritually and physically, that he would reunite them with their families and keep them safe, and that we would pray for the administration and the people who have the power to make decisions and influence in this area about what happens in the future. And I know that these prayers may seem bold or maybe even crazy and feel like, what difference is it going to make if I pray about this? But as we've seen in Ruth, God is at work even when we can't see him. Even when we don't know what's happening, he is working for the good of his people. And he is a God who will go above and beyond what his people request. And he uses everyday people, just like you and me, to make that happen. So this week and going forward, I just ask that we be a community that prays about this and prays for these people. We're going to move now to a time of communion, um, and we're going to be worshiping through song and taking communion. And if you'd like, there's also a box in the back for giving. Um, But as you think about this and as you come forward to take uh, the bread and the juice, I just ask that you would think about the love that Christ showed us, even while we were still foreigners. And I hope that it inspires you, that that creates that contagious kind of love that you can't 
just keep to yourself, but that you have to go on and show it to other people in big and bold ways and with big and bold requests of God to move. So please pray with me. Father, we praise you that you care about the outcasts, the foreigners, and the lowly, that you came and sacrificed for us while we were still sinners, and that you've made us righteous through Jesus. We pray that you, we would be a people who love others the way that you loved us, that we would not only love people who our society deems as worthy, but that we would love the least of these the way that you move towards us. And lastly, we pray for change at the border. We pray for these children, that you would protect them, and that we, you would reunite them with their families, and ultimately that you would rescue them spiritually and physically. We pray that, pray that you would protect them and restore them in a way that only you can. And we trust that you are at work in all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.